0: This is episode 884 on the Hidden Wire podcast, my interview
1: with Rutger Bregman. I really hope you enjoy it. We're talking about Utopia for Realists.
0: Rutger Bregman, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And um, yeah, on the other side of the world, whereabouts are you? I'm uh, right now in Utrecht in Holland. It's a little bit to the south of Amsterdam.
0: Okay. Is that where you're from? or?
1: Yes, I live there. Okay, great. And
0: it's uh, evening time for you there. It is, yeah. So tell us, mate, tell us a little bit about yourself. You've got a very interesting TED Talk, which is why I had to reach out to you. I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, you really challenge, um, challenge our thinking, I suppose, and I think that's good. And uh, that's, you know, what I hope to do on this show as well is mm-hmm. challenge our listeners' thinking so they can create different perspectives of the world and, and build different ideas about how to best live their life Um, So yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show for that reason.
1: And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a historian. um, You like philosophy. Um, Yes. I write about economics, about philosophy, but I was trained as a historian and um, my latest book is called Utopia for Realists Mm. and it's about crazy ideas, like really, really crazy ideas that may seem completely unrealistic, unreasonable right now, but I argue might become reality in the future. So why um, do you write about crazy ideas? Well I think it's important to recognize that you know every milestone of civilization uh, the end of slavery or democracy or you know the rise of the welfare state, or just how incredibly wealthy we are today. It was all crazy once, right? It was all ludicrous, utopian once. Mm. Uh, so I've always loved this quote from um, the Irish poet Oscar Wilde, who once wrote that um, progress is the realization of utopias. So we need those utopian visions, those crazy visions, if we want progress in this century.
0: Okay. So why is that? Why is that important to you?
1: Well, um, you know. I was, uh, well, maybe a little bit a personal note here. You know, my father is, um, is a preacher, Protestant minister. Uh, so I was always raised with the idea that we have to ask the big questions, you know, the big questions about what the meaning of life is, you know, what we're doing it all for. And that just an individual successful life and, uh, you know, a house and a car and children, that that's not enough. You know, we, we want to be part of something bigger. Hmm. Now, what I didn't... Uh, you know, I, I didn't become a Christian or anything. I'm not religious in that way. But I've always always kept asking the same questions that my, my father taught me to, to ask. Um, and I think that, you know, in the past 20, 25 years, many people have pretty much stopped doing that. Uh, the yeah. the belief was that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after, you know, 1989, that we had just arrived at the end of history. There's a famous book written by an American philosopher, Francis Fukuyama, who said, you know, this is it. This is the last man. This is the end of history. We don't have to worry about anything anymore. We're all living in democratic countries right now. We're all getting richer. And the only thing we have to worry about is what the next iPhone is going to look like. And I always had this nagging feeling that <laughs> we had lost something. So what are, what are some of those
0: bigger questions you ask? I know you just mentioned a couple of them, but what are, what are some mm-hmm. of
1: them? Well, it always starts with thinking about what is wrong with our current society. So the first question that I ask is, why are there still millions of people living in poverty in incredibly wealthy countries? Like, why is that? Is there is there a reason for that? Why don't we just completely eradicate poverty uh, if we have the means to do that? So this is also what my TED Talk is about. You know, many people assume that poverty is a, you know, a failing of character. Margaret Thatcher, the British prime minister, once said this, you know, poverty was just a personality defect, she said. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously many people on the right reason in this way that it's just a lack of... Uh, you know, personal responsibility, yep. but also a lot of people on the left, they say, oh, well, you know, we need to help the poor to make better decisions, etc., etc." So it's the, basically the same assumption behind that, that there's somehow something wrong with the poor themselves. Yeah, I um, just have a
0: belief that they just lack the motivation or ambition to, to get off the couch, basically.
1: Exactly, exactly. And this is a really, really common assumption. Uh, and this is also, I believe, one of the reasons why there is still poverty, because we think, well, that's just their own fault. Fault, you know uh, if they they want to get out of poverty, then they have to pull their themselves out by their own bootstraps. That's the yeah. philosophy that many people have hmm. now. what I did is I looked at the recent scientific research into the nature of poverty and it turns out that we have a completely misguided view of what it actually is. Hmm. so to summarize it, poverty is not a lack of character; poverty is a lack of cash. That's it. Nothing more. Nothing less. And if you want to, well, if you want to eradicate poverty, the medicine is called cash. Um, and there's a huge amount of scientific evidence that shows that this actually works. Yeah. That this is the way to to solve the problem. It sounds too easy to be true. Yeah, it, it does, <laughs> doesn't it?
0: Well, yeah, and, and that's and that's know, why I think it's like really important. And, and you think that'd be you know better off and happier. But is how does that work? I mean, I, I assume if you just give people cash, it um, they won't use it wisely, and uh, especially people that have no experience with using cash. Maybe they'll just use it for um, things that just I don't know, take them further into a hole.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think that's why we need to look at this research about you know what poverty is, and, and ask ourselves the question: Why do the poor make so many poor decisions? Because I mean, there's an overwhelming amount of data that shows that this is true, right? They, they the make poor, bad they. they yeah. Exactly. You know, they get more loans. They can't repay. They raise their children less well. They eat less healthily, etc., etc. There's a lot of data that shows that the poor make poor decisions. Now, the, the the question is why, and what we know now is is from, for example, from a very interesting experiment that happened a couple of years ago in India. We know now that it's all about the context. So if we would live in poverty, anyone, you know, all of us would make poor decisions in the same context. Now, you can compare it by, by being busy, you know? We all know that feeling of being busy. Yeah. Now, what happens if you're busy, you have a scar- scarcity of time, um, what happens is that you start focusing on the short term. Uh, and in the short term, you're gonna make, you know, you're gonna be pretty good at handling the problems that you know, arise in the short term. But in the long term, you're gonna make bad decisions. And this is basically what the poor experience as well. It's got a lack of cognitive bandwidth. That's what psychologists call it. But the problem is, is that you can't really take a break from poverty. I mean, if you're busy, you can just take a break, go on vacation or whatever. Uh, but you can't really do that um, when you're in poverty. Okay. okay. So you're
0: saying either way, when we're, when we're really busy, um, focusing on the short mm-hmm. term or when we're in poverty, um, we've got that what, lack of cognitive bandwidth and that
1: can make us make poorer decisions? Exactly. And l- let me explain it a little bit by, by, you know, referring to that experiment that happened in India. Uh-huh. So this was an experiment with sugarcane farmers. And the special thing about them is that they receive about 60 percent of their annual income all at once. Right. So that's right after the harvest. Huge. And, it, and it means that they are relatively poor one part of the year and rich the other. And so the researchers could do a very simple thing. You know, they could give them an IQ test before the harvest and after the harvest and see what the difference would be. And the difference was huge. Mm. You know, it was 13, 14 points in IQ, you know, to to give you an idea that's comparable to losing a night's sleep or the effects of uh, alcoholism. Uh, Now, these were the same people. You know, it's just the context that changed in which they were. So it was not a lack of personal responsibility. It was not, you know there was not something wrong with them it was just the context in which they lived and this is also the reason why in many of the other experiments that i talk about in my book when they just give people free money and they get people out of poverty unconditionally that people suddenly start making much better choices because suddenly they are able to focus on the long term again you know they are able to invest in their lives and make much better decisions okay
0: what what, what does what role does information have to play in, in making better decisions because from my understanding and in my experience you know the more information that I have available to me the better decisions I can make as well so does money give us access to that information so we can make better information is there a link there
1: well I'm, I'm not sure actually I mean there's quite a lot of research that uh, that asks the question you know what if we just try and teach the poor to make better decisions so what if we give them a money management? training uh, course you know uh, what what happens then and the thing is that nothing much happens actually some of the these courses you know helping the unemployed to get a job or as I said helping the poor to manage their money even have a negative effect because hmm. while we're trying to teach them you know they still live in poverty, uh, and the course takes up a lot of time. You know they have to devote all this time to gathering all this knowledge, all this managing all this information, and things only get worse. Right. Um, so the first problem is not a lack of knowledge. I'd say the first problem really is that lack of money. Uh, that's really where it starts. And obviously, if you have that, if you get out of poverty, then you're living in a different context. You you know, you're able to think more about what are the right decisions going to be for you and your life, for your future. And sure, then that information matters, but it doesn't really start there.
0: So it starts with the money first and then the information. And I, exactly. get, I get that. That makes sense because, um, yeah, if you, you know, there's that statement paralysis by analysis, um, you know, where anyone can go out there and learn yeah. this information. Um, yeah. but, but this if, is if really fundamental, doing... by the way. They're not taking action. It's really fundamental. What's that?
1: Well, I mean, there's so much and so many anti-poverty programs are all about education, education, education. I mean, this is what people always love to hear. Everyone is in favor of education. But education doesn't get you anywhere if if people are still in poverty. It's pretty much pointless to educate children that are you know still in poverty it's pretty much pointless to educate unemployed people you know who can't get anywhere and and try to get them to pay attention in courses while they're worrying about whether they can eat you know next week uh you really got to start with getting people out of poverty first
0: so why does money change their mindset or give them motivation to make better decisions because I. I'm just trying to find the link there. Mm-hmm. What is the, what is the reason that money actually causes them to start making more cognitively
1: effective mm-hmm. decisions in their life? Um, yeah. Well, money is money is freedom. I think so. Money is the freedom to think about what you want to do you know, what your life. Um, There's there's this idea out there that's really gaining popularity. A big part of my book is about it. It's called basic income. So the idea is to give everyone a monthly grant, completely unconditional, um, and that people are completely free to decide for themselves what they want to do with it. Now, some people call this basic income. They call it, and I really like this term, they call it venture capital for the people. So with with a basic income everyone will have the opportunity to freedom to move to a different job move to a different city start a new company etc uh, there are a lot of people right now living from paycheck to paycheck mm. uh, who don't really have the ability to to try something new now just imagine how much talent we're wasting because of that no, just absolutely. imagine how many how many cool products we don't have right now because there are so many brilliant minds stuck in stuck in you know Uh, meaningless jobs or in poverty it's it's a huge source of waste i think
0: so really uh, allowing people to have money that that for me it it means that they can put the the fundamental basic needs of living uh, aside Mm -hmm. because you know no longer is shelter food and and clothing etc warmth or whatever they might call no longer is Mm -hmm. that the the fundamental concern of their lives um so they can actually use that then to to progress forward and, and make decisions
1: about um, how they can progress in their own lives I agree, I agree, and you can start taking risks. I mean we all know that capitalism is yeah. all about the ability to take risks right hmm. if we If we want real innovation, you know what you do is you give one hundred people the opportunity to try something new and ninety 99- nine will come back and, you know, they'll have failed and one, one person will come up with something great. You know, that's what innovation has always looked like. Yeah. Um, it's not a coincidence that, you know, in the 17th and the 18th century, a lot of the great innovations were actually being done in England by preachers who basically got a basic income from their, uh, you know, from the, the, from the people who went to church back then that, because they had a lot of free time to do whatever they want.
0: Okay, so how does the, how does the basic income work? I mean, what does that look like? Has there been tests done, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So um, I think it's really important, again, to look at the scientific evidence. So not just to make it some ideological thing, but look at what actually happens when you give people this kind of money, you know, make it completely unconditional. So the most fascinating story is of what happened in 1974 in a small town in Canada. Now, the, the, the town is called Dothan. Don't and what think. they did there uh, is they, they they started an, an experiment, and it, it lasted for uh, four years. Yeah. There were a lot of economists, a lot of sociologists, anthropologists. They all moved to that town to study the effects because everyone was lifted out of poverty. It was called the town with no poverty. Now, as I said, the experiment lasted for four years, but then there was a problem. Um, there was a new conservative government, and they thought, you know, this is a really crazy experiment. Like, what are you doing? You're actually giving people free money. Um, so there, they said, all right, stop this at once, and there was no money left to analyze the results, and it was forgotten. You know, they had 2,000 boxes full of data, you know, graphs, interviews, tables, and they had to put it all away in the archives. Yeah. It was only 25 years later that a Canadian professor heard about the records, found them, did the analysis, and discovered that the experiment was actually a huge success. Hmm. Wow. I'm I'm interested to to see how that works and what what is the level like where does the basic income level, um, you know what what is the basic level. Well, it has to be enough, obviously, to get you out of poverty, and this differs from country to country. So, I'd say in most most developed countries, it would be around well, in Europe, around a thousand euros. In in the US, I'd say eleven hundred dollars, something like that. Okay. It differs uh, it differs from country to country where the exact mm-hmm. poverty line is. But as you don't you don't have to worry anymore about you know food, shelter, clothing. So it's really the basics. It's a floor in the income distribution, a platform that you can always stand on, always rely on. And you're allowed to earn as much money as you want on top of that.
0: Oh, so you, you get the yeah, basic
1: yeah. income and then you, you can earn anything on top of that. Exactly. It's not communism or anything. It's not the standard income for everyone. What, I think um, that would be a disaster. Do, do you know much about the
0: Australian system? I'm from Australia, obviously. And um, hmm. we, we've got a, um employment benefit scheme. I don't know what it's called. And I haven't been in Australia for two years. Uh, nor I haven't Mm -hmm. been on this program for a while, but as I understand it, is that our government actually supports a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. That's really bad. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's it's basically a level of income that we give people that are out of employment um, so they can you know, obviously pay for rent and buy food and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really that much. Um, I was on it when I was a university student. They allowed it for some time and then they took me off it. Um, So it was a bit sporadic in that sense. And then there was a period of my life where I was in between jobs um, where I did apply for it and receive it as well, but it wasn't—it wasn't really that much. Um, mm-hmm. But perhaps you know it was enough to
1: you know buy basic rent, um, basic food, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know the to, welfare state—the welfare state as we have it now—is obviously better than nothing. But around the developed world, the welfare state has become more and more bureaucratic. Uh, And more and more humiliating also for the people who are in it Uh, because you have to fill in so many forms and you have to do so many interviews with so many government bureaucrats and you have to prove time and time again that you're really sick enough, that you're depressed enough, that you're really a hopeless case that will never get anything done in your life. And then maybe, maybe the government will give you a little bit of money.
0: But that's why uh, so, I sort of didn't go for it, actually, because when I was a university, student, I just couldn't be bothered to spend all that time trying to get exactly, some money. Exactly. exactly. Um, and so instead, this, I went out and got a job. An, actually, so it worked in that sense.
1: And this is what makes people depressed, right? So then we wonder, oh, why don't are the poor not getting a job? You know, why are they, well, almost lazy or anything? Well, we've got a system that creates unproductive people. It keeps it keeps them at the bottom. A basic income is very different. It says, you know what? we believe in you, we trust you to make great decisions. And here's some venture capital, Go on, explore the world, do great things. That's the whole philosophy behind it. And you know, as I said, it really works. So for for example, in the Canadian experiment, what they found out is that healthcare costs went down, crime went down, kids performed much better in school, domestic violence incidents were down, mental health complaints were down, and people used the money really well. You know, they 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 went to new jobs, started new companies, and no, it was not true. They didn't turn out to be massively lazy. This is what people always worry about, but there's absolutely no no Evidence from that, from any basic income experiment. This has never been proven scientifically. It's always the case that people use the money really well.
0: So, really, it really creates a different kind of culture and mentality then within the society.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's I, much I
0: feel the wealth system that we have at the moment, at least in Australia from my experience does create that depressing oh you know i don't really go on this this is embarrassing it's not really enough it takes so much time and and now i think you know to to receive it after a few weeks you have to go into certain programs and stuff um to earn your way uh,
1: Mm um which certainly takes you off the track of of doing stuff that you like but yeah um there's no stigma anymore because everyone gets it you know whether you're employed or unemployed Rich, poor, men, women—doesn't matter. Everyone gets it. It's just your right, not a favor anymore. It's just a right because you, well, because you're you're alive. That's that's basically you're enough. Alive, and you're, you're part of this society. You're part of this world. Exactly. So,
0: what, yeah. what, what about a wealth cat I mean, is that something that you'd consider?
1: Well, I haven't written about that. You know, I believe in progressive taxation. I think you should always worry about, worry when when inequality gets too big in any kind of society. As I said, I mean, I'm I'm not in favor of a standard salary for everyone. I'm not a communist or anything. I believe there are reasons why there is a certain amount of inequality in every good society. I mean, even in Scandinavia, I was recently in Norway, um, which are basically built sort of the best social systems that you can find anywhere Uh, and even there there there's some amount of inequality Mm -hmm. so I think that's reasonable but sure I mean every society needs to worry about rising inequality Uh, and especially you know if you look at the US for example but maybe you've read this or heard about this book by the French economist Thomas Piketty I mean he makes it quite clear that this is one of the great challenges of our time. Okay.
0: is capitalist the solution? I mean, is that a system that's not going to be working any longer? Um, because it feels like now it's it's really about, you know, that that uh, separation of income, mm-hmm. the inequality of income and mm-hmm. really separating the rich from the poor. And, and it seems like it's a system that keeps us trapped, um, you know, mm-hmm. through putting us in debt, through enticing and advertising to us and finding out clever ways to make us buy, buy, buy. Yeah. Um, and really just creating a sense of insecurity in our lives so that we feel like we can't go anywhere and we just have to follow the system. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I feel that, um, and at least this is my view, uh, mm-hmm. I feel that's really limiting to, to perhaps the progression of humanity as a whole is because many people are trapped in life thinking that this is the only way that they have to go uh, mm-hmm. and it's limiting them from really unleashing their potential, unleashing what they're really good at, or how they can best serve the mm-hmm. society. Rather, they're just stuck in in jobs that they don't like, and and you know the, the stats show that 30% of the workforce um, are yeah. indeed engaged yeah. with their work, and the rest are just not loving it. And that this this huh. whole sense of lifestyle for me, I said this to my students last night, is that it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem like the way we should be living this world. And perhaps there's something on the move now. Um, certainly with, you know, technology, technology advances with AI, et cetera. Um, what
1: are your thoughts on all that? Well, know, big thought, but, if, yeah. if, if we zoom out a little bit, I mean, 200 years ago, about 90% of the world population worked in agriculture, on farms. Yep. And since then, we've seen tremendous progress. We're richer, we are healthier, we are smarter than ever And especially the past 30 years have just been incredible on a global scale. You know, child mortality has declined by 50 percent. Extreme poverty has declined by 50 percent. You know, we are also living in the most safest of of all periods in world history. The amount of war deaths has gone down by 90 percent. So this is something that people don't really get from the news. But actually, capitalism has been quite good good for us in many ways. Um, So I think that's important to remember. But it's also true that what we call economic growth. Uh, nowadays is not progress anymore. I mean, economic growth these days is is basically buying more stuff that we don't need to impress people we don't like, (laughs) or, you know, getting more jobs that People who have these jobs consider meaningless. You know, there was a recent poll in the UK that found that thirty seven percent of all British workers think their job is completely useless, you know, doesn't add anything of value. And it's people with, with, with great resumes, great salaries. It's not garbage collectors or nurses, you know, it's consultants and bankers and corporate lawyers saying about their own jobs that they don't add anything of value. It's quite so a that one of
0: those jobs, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think it it really shows us that we need to rethink what work is. And it's actually capitalism that got us here, right? We are now rich enough sort of to transcend capitalism and to move to, well, I'm not sure what we're going to call it in the future, but it can be really different. So that's one thing. The other thing I think we really have to remember is that, you know, there's a lot of variation in capitalism, right? I just talked about Norway, which is a capitalist society, and the u.s is a capitalist society as well but it's really really different right yeah. so we can change the rules of the game and basic income is i think one of the most promising ways to move towards a different society where people have a lot more freedom to make their own choices and to do things that they actually care about
0: so what just um from your perspective what's what's the difference and i don't really know but what's the difference in the the Norwegian society and the American society, as far as capitalism is concerned.
1: Well, it's it's basically just institutional differences in sort of taming the, the the free market. Yeah. So obviously there's a there's a much stronger welfare state in a country like Norway. You know whether you think about paternity leave, which is ten weeks there. By the by, by the government, um, or whether you think about you know the unemployment insurance, or you know how easy it is to get benefits, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's just much better. The poverty line is at, is at twenty five thousand dollars or something like that, so it doesn't really exist there poverty. And they decided that as a society that they would you know stick together and and create a, okay. a, a different kind of capitalism um i think that's really important to to remember that there's nothing natural about the way our society or economy is structured we have a lot of power and i mean we live in democracy so we have a lot of power to move to a different society there's nothing inevitable about inequality or poverty or whatever
0: yeah okay it's interesting and you say we live in de- democracy i just uh, watched this documentary the other night on democracy and Particularly in relation mm-hmm. to America, I guess, and how it differs there, and how mm-hmm. yes they they have this democ- democratic society, but it seems that like the the powers above uh, the big institutions um, seem to control that, and um, they actually try um, to do whatever they can to to tame the public, so they don 't really
1: have that democratic voice it's definitely true, and i mean there's a lot of obviously wealth and power are important in. You know, the course of human history. But what I always like to emphasize is the power of ideas. I mean, just think about, for example, at the end of the 19th century, there were women who thought, you know what, we want the right to vote. We don't have that now. We, want, we think we deserve the right to vote. Yeah. And they were not the most powerful group in society back then. And they didn't have the most money either, but they did have an incredibly powerful idea. And so it worked out. And now we think women's right to vote is just, you know, normal. It's a milestone of civilization. That's always what happens with utopias. You know, once we have them, we think, oh, that's just normal. I was in Norway. And (laughs) again, I was asking about the 10 weeks of paternity leave. And they said, yeah, sure, that's just normal. You know, I mean, in Holland, we have two days. So I was quite surprised by 10 weeks. (laughs) Uh, But that's always what happens when when. When you achieve something great, you're, you're, you're really quickly, you get used to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think that's important to remember that real change never starts in places like Washington or Westminster, you know, places where political power resides. Um, it always starts with the crazy people on the fringes, hmm. and it works both ways, right? Trump, just a few years ago, we thought it was crazy and realistic and imaginable that he would become president of the United States, and here he is, yeah. so it works both ways.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Um, you, you talk about, you know, a 15-hour work week. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that possible, and, and why, why do you think that is?
1: Well, not many people know that throughout the 20th century, like almost all the economists, almost all the sociologists, philosophers, they all believed that we would be working less and less and less and less. And that the great challenge of the future was going to be boredom. <laughs> so the idea of a 15-hour workweek, that refers to uh, an essay that the British economist John Maynard Keynes wrote in 1930. And it's a really fascinating essay. Sorry, it's just what's a, that essay?
0: Who's that by? Uh,
1: it's uh, by John Maynard Keynes, uh, British John, economist. John Maynard Keynes? Yeah, Keynes. Um, and it's called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. I really recommend reading it, by the way. It's just a few pages long, it's very fascinating. Now, he wrote it in 1930. Yeah. Uh, and it was about 2030. He, and he made two predictions. The first prediction was we're prob- probably going to get a lot richer. Now he was completely right about that. You know, he thought we're, we'd be about four to eight times as rich, and you know nowadays we're five to six times as rich. So that was that was correct. Yeah. But the other prediction he made was that we would use that wealth to work less, which you can obviously do, right? If there are more, if, there are more, if there's more productivity, if there are more robots, automation, etc., you can use that to start working less. And he just ext- extrapolated from from, you know, what had already started to happen since the 1850s, you know, the workweek had already shrunk a lot. And he said, you know, probably around 2030, we'll have a workweek of just 15 hours. Mm. That's it. You know, we don't need to work any more uh, than that. And for a long time, you know, up until 1980, he was right. The workweek was shrinking. It was, it's only fairly recently that around the world, we started working more and more and more again. Why? Why are we working more and more? I mean, mm-hmm. well, that's a, that's a really great question. I believe it's it is one of the big questions of our times, and you could you know you could write books and books about it. I've got I've got two answers. So the first answer is again consumerism, as I said, buying stuff we don't really need. Um, but isn't that how the capitalist society works? Yeah, yeah, you, you could you could definitely argue that. But the problem here with that answer is that so much of the stuff we consume, you know, the iPhones and, and all kinds of other crap we don't really need because, I mean, our last iPhone was all right, so why didn't we need the new one that's really expensive? Anyway, um, a lot of the stuff that we consume is not really produced by us, right? We don't do it, it's either produced by robots or by wage slaves in third world countries. Mm. So we don't do it. Most of the people in rich countries are sitting in offices all day, yeah. you know, sending emails mm. to people they don't like, or writing reports <laughs> no one's ever gonna read. Or, or yeah, yeah. <laughs> browsing Facebook or whatever. Um, so that can't really be the case, that that consumerism is the cause of, of, of our long work weeks. Um, and then I discovered an essay that was written by an American anthropologist. Wouldn't uh, you say sorry name, just on
0: com- communi- consumerism uh, for the middle class or, or lower that mm-hmm. it is it is why we work I mean I mean I see a lot of people going to you know again going to jobs they don't like to mm-hmm. buy stuff you know using that fight club co- quote that I know you're a fan of to buy st- stuff they don't need and it's mm-hmm. like that's what we do and, and once you start really becoming more purposeful in your life and, you know, understanding what you really need and what you really want and what really makes you happy, you start not having to consume stuff. And there you go, Mm -hmm. well, hang on, I don't need all this money anyway. Uh, And that's Mm -hmm. a a connection that I've made in in the last several years. Um, Wouldn't you argue that a lot of people are are stuck in that consumer race and race and and stuck in work because of that?
1: Oh, that's definitely true. And people get mortgages, you know, and they have to, they are – you know, imprisoned by high loans. And sure, there are a lot of mechanisms out there. Mm. I think that one of the most important reasons is probably that we have such an old-fashioned and narrow definition of what work is and that we think in order to be of value to society that we have to sit in that office all day yep. because otherwise we're seen as lazy and not productive or whatever. Um, so that's probably what's, what's going on. And my but I thoughts re- on that is that, you know, I, I
0: see so many people sitting in these offices and doing these jobs. i worked for a company mm-hmm. Uh, recently not so long back and um, the amount of people that worked in these jobs and they seemed really busy but they did absolutely nothing in my in my view Um, oh yeah and i I can't find anything more just frustrating because I'm, i'm passionate about the use of time how would you and to see that happening
1: perp- I'm you know i've actually got a theory on that i, oh. I haven't written on this yet but i've got I've, I've i've got a theory on this is that you know we we always say that right now we live in a knowledge economy right now hmm. and and the eco- the assumption behind that is that knowledge is the source of productivity these days right that you need to get a lot of great education and that helps you to come up with great ideas because ideas is what what is really scarce these days. But I actually think that the knowledge economy or huge parts of the knowledge economy is about something different. So if you look example at, uh, you know, business administration or all these management courses and people talking about the network society and co-creation and all these blah, blah, bullshit terms, right, Mm. Um, (laughs) that they earn a lot of money with. I think that big parts of the knowledge economy are not about real knowledge, but about pretending, about pretending to have some kind of special knowledge that other people have to pay for. Um, It's interesting that this is also, I mean, it's also the case in, um, in the financial sector, there are a lot of financial products that are just – the whole idea of it is to make things more com- complex than they need to be because you can earn a lot of money when people don't really understand your financial product, uh, and you can rip them off. Mm-hmm. So a big part of the knowledge economy is about making things more complex than they need to be. And that's, uh, that's really fascinating is that bankers are doing the same thing as Marxist intellectuals. They are also <laughs> making things more complex than they need to be. Um, it's the same thing happening all over again. I, can
0: see that. I mean in the entrepreneurial space you know online businesses and marketing and all that stuff selling courses to stuff that just doesn't really I, I just don't think matters
1: really <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah I agree yeah yeah and that that's what you start doing when when your job is not really necessary anymore but you still want a job and you still want to feel like like useful and, and to show to people that you are being productive or whatever and then you start coming up with some kind of weird language yeah. and weird words that no one really understands and you don't understand, really understand it either. But at least it seems as if, it, as, as if it's useful and as if it explains something about the world. I think that is sort of what we've seen happening in the past couple of decades. Well, we've we've become so
0: disconnected from, I don't know, from how we should be living our lives maybe or, or from our internal guidance. Um, yeah, that yeah and use, that's, that's really sad. We use work as a reason
1: to create our sense of self-significance yeah it's it's sort of it's a form of religion i think that you know in in 100 200 years time we'll look back on this epoch as a really crazy period where you know we'll, we'll, people will tell to their children like, "Did you know that people were sitting in offices?" You know, in reality they were not doing anything. You know, but they they all pretended to work, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll 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 look at this as some kind of weird ideological religious time. You know, just as we look back on I don't know, people from Easter Island or the Mayas or <laughs> from past yeah. civilization as oh, those guys were weird. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, so 15-hour um, work week. Um, sorry, I, I cut you off before with the thought you had. I don't know if you can get back to that thought. But
1: Well, as I said, I mean, the, the the reason that people always think for uh, – like the, the big reason why we don't have the 15-hour work week, most people think about consumerism. Yeah. But uh-huh. we already talked about it. I think the big reason is meaningless jobs. That is probably the reason that capitalism just keeps on inventing jobs that don't really need to exist. There's a big debate going on right now. You know, will the robots take all our jobs in the future? There are some experts that predict that 50% of all jobs will be gone in the next 20 years. But then there are economists that say, oh, well, we don't have to worry about that because there always will be new jobs. And I actually think those economists are right. It's just that most of those jobs won't be useful, Useful, but there, there will be new jobs unless we op- – unless we update our ideology, you know, unless we update our de- definition of what work is and move towards a different kind of society.
0: Mm, yeah, it's, it's a big question in my head at the moment as well um, with with the advancement of AI and, you know, machines taking over mm-hmm. jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely get that. Like, what sort of new jobs will they create? And, yeah, how much meaning will they have? I can only imagine that most of the jobs that we will be um, have any sort of purpose is entertaining jobs. Um, how I can entertain you um, yeah. through that human yeah. sort of interaction, yeah. um, comedy, yeah. acting, whatever it might be, you know. Yeah. Um, but all the you, other jobs, you know, I can't see. I can't see the need for for us to be there.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it really depends on, on on again on the choices that we make. So there are a lot of people right now worrying about that healthcare is getting more and more expensive. But I think it's actually a good thing. You know, if we have the greying of society and more and more people are getting old and we can afford to spend more money on healthcare and actually, you know, giving the elderly proper care. I think it's just the civilized right thing that we spent more and more money on healthcare, right? We shouldn't worry about that. That is the whole purpose of getting richer is that you, you can actually do that. Um, yeah. but That's good for those, so, of those people that are getting richer. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and, and uh, as I said, I mean, there are ways to, to create a society where everyone has access to proper healthcare, <laughs> I don't want to start talking about Norway again, but <laughs> I mean there are, there are ways to do that. Yeah. Uh, so what you know, as a historian uh, and and obviously a bit of a
0: thought leader, um, what 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 do you see as like a, a few of the key issues moving forward that will stop us from going towards our utopian? Style, uh, Mm -hmm. lifestyle or stop us from progression
1: well you know what i always say is that i'm not an optimist and i'm not a pessimist i'm just a possibilist Mm -hmm. so i believe that things can be different Mm -hmm. but there's nothing inevitable about any of that what i what i hope is that last year has been a wake-up call for many people you know we obviously we had the election of donald trump we had brexit And it seems quite clear to millions of people around the globe right now that we need new ideas, you know, that we uh, that we can't stick to the status quo. And, uh, you know, when I look at, you know, the subject that I'm really interested in is obviously basic income. And when I just started writing about it just a couple of years ago, like really Four years ago, it was a completely forgotten idea. No one was talking about this, Mm. and then four years later, you're suddenly allowed to do a a TED talk on a big stage in Vancouver, and lots of people are talking about it. And you know, my book is now getting translated in a lot of languages. So it's been really fascinating for me to see how quickly this goes, how quickly ideas can spread around the globe. Um, So yeah, that gives me hope, Uh, and I think hope is important, especially in times like. Well, we'll see. <laughs> you know, as a as a, as a historian, I've really learned that you shouldn't predict anything because predictions, <laughs> well, they they never come out. That is um, one thing that we've learned from history. Okay,
0: I, I certainly agree. I mean, I think you know, there's there's certainly a lot more sharing of ideas and and that access that um, allows people to to generate
1: more ideas of their own as well. Yeah, um, but and it's a truly really international debate right now. I mean, where are you now? I'm in Japan. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm in Holland, and we're talking about basic income, and that's that's fascinating because yeah. in the '60s there was a big basic income debate as well, but it was really you know just in North America, and then in the '80s there was a big basic income exper- uh, debate in Europe. But nowadays it's truly global, um, and it happens so quickly. So, for example, um, I wrote in my book about an experiment that happened in London in 2009, where they gave 13 homeless men. £3,000. These men were completely free to decide for themselves, again, what they want to spend it on. Now, a lot of people thought that's crazy. It was actually really successful. So the men were really frugal with the money, and seven out of 13 of them had a roof above their head after a year. And it was it even made financial sense, because the whole project cost £50,000, and normally they'd spend £400,000 on these men. So even the economist wrote, uh, the best way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them. So I, I had written about this story. And yeah. then an older, older woman um, in Holland, she read the book. She gave it to her son, who gave it to a friend, to another friend, who gave it to another friend who lives in Vancouver, Canada. She read that and was really inspired by it and thought, you know what? I'm going to quit my bullshit job. I'm going to start an NGO that's going to do a big study on, on giving cash to the homeless. And just a couple of months ago, I received an email from her that said, you know what? We really should meet because I've just received half a million in government funding to yeah. start this experiment. Now, that is just amazing, isn't it? Just mm. some, some Dutch guy writes a book and it travels. The ideas travels around the globe. And then this woman starts this fascinating NGO and receives half a million in government funding. I think that's really how it works. If you, So that's you know,
0: ideas going into action
1: yeah exactly and we all have our role to play you know we all have different resources different talents and we we can all think about what we can contribute
0: what do you what do you think um you know the separation of nations and you know becoming a global society uh, do you think that's going to be a problem from stopping us from really making big leaps and bounds
1: well (laughs) you know nowadays we're obviously living in a time of xenophobia and nations closing their borders and there's a there's a lot of worry around immigrants. The, the most radical in my idea in my book is about open borders, yeah. which is obviously also the most utopian idea, and many people are, will say, "Well, that's never going to happen." But you know, let's zoom out a little bit again and think about our society from the perspective of someone who lives in the year 2,300. You know, what will be the most unjust thing he or she would see? Well, it's, it's probably borders. You know, borders are the biggest source of global inequality, while we know from a mountain of scientific evidence that immigration is the most powerful weapon we've got against against poverty, and that so many of the objections we have against it are just nonsense, you know. Mm. So um, this is probably uh, something that's not very fashionable <laughs> to think about these days. But I think that in the long term, we really have to remember that in the end, you know, all our wealth comes from humans and their ideas and often borders, you know, they, they really block people and their ambitions. Mm. You
0: yeah, know, well, I think it, it has to be something that that, um, that, that comes about because with, with most of the, the major issues, they're all global. You know, look at climate change, look at poverty, look at... Oh, you're absolutely right. Or, um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it has to be a solution there, mate. sounds like a fantastic book and I'm going to s- stick the uh, link in the show notes, guys. So for you listening out there... Uh, make sure you check it out and then pick up a copy, uh, Utopia for Realists. Um, You've got a bunch of other books too, uh, which I... um, Which are all in Dutch, so uh, (laughs) don't Uh, worry about it. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. Um, So you've got a a website that people can check out.
1: I have, um, yeah, rutgerbregman.com.
0: Rutgerbregman.com. So that's R-U-T-G-E-R-B-R-E-G-M-A-N.com. So I'll stick the link in the show notes for that as well. You've got, uh, you do some... Um, journalist, work for The Correspondent, um, which you've got some interesting articles up there as well that I've noticed, uh, which mm-hmm. I look forward to reading myself. Um, any other ways people can connect with you, Rudger?
1: Oh, you know, you can just send me an email. My email address is on, uh, on my website. Okay, I'll stick that there too. Cool. Now, I've got a few questions that I want to ask
0: you just before we uh, wrap things up here that I ask all guests that come on the show. And the first question
1: is, do you have any routines or rituals do you believe contribute to your success? You know, um, I have this weird thing. Um, Many people have sort of deadline stress, right? So they start working when they are getting near to a deadline. Now, I have it completely the other way around. Whenever I have something to do, I immediately get stressed and I meet and immediately do it, and then I'm relaxed again. And I think this is one of the reasons why I'm maybe a little bit more more productive than some other people is <laughs> you know you just do a lot if you're if you immediately feel that sort of stress. So uh, yeah, I think the re- the the, the, re- the big lesson is about writing is just start doing it. You know, don't dream about it. Don't wait for inspiration because inspiration will never come. Just start writing. That's the only thing you can do. I think inspiration comes in action. Yeah, often. Um, yeah, definitely. And like, every first sentence is going to be crap, mm, right? Mm. And and every second and every third as well. You know, maybe the fortieth sentence will be okay. Uh, that is that is my experience. Okay, so
0: going back to the question, your routine is is what just to take action to do. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, writing is really, it has very, very little to do with inspiration, I really believe that. It's just a lot of hard work, uh, and just forcing yourself to sit down. Uh, I never really like it, to be honest. Uh, I only like it when I finish the piece, (laughs) and then I'm like, oh, this is great, Uh, but I'm the opposite. I think that, I like I mean, writing, there are a lot of aspiring that, that, writers there who, who are waiting for inspiration and I'm just saying to them don't wait for it because it will never come
0: yeah yeah I often find you just sit your bum in the chair and start writing anything um, and then exactly. you get into this bit of flow uh, but yeah. I'm the opposite I'd prefer to I actually like writing um, but I'm not so happy when I finish an article <laughs> 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 um, what advice would you give your 20 year old self?
1: uh oh that's a good that's a good question um, d- don't worry don't worry when when people say no i think that is so let me tell you a little story the the first book that i wrote i um was a very small book it was sort of a self-help book uh, meant for students that were worrying about how they can pass their exam and i had written and written it in just a weekend and i thought you know now i want to get it want to have it published And I uh, sent an email to a publisher, and they sent an email back a few days later and said, you know, this is really crap. What do you think? We're never going to publish this. And then I thought, you know, doesn't really matter, right? One no. What really matters is if I'll get one yes. So I just started spamming, like, all the publishers I could find. And 16 of them said, no, this is really crap. And then one of them said, hmm, maybe we can do something with this. Hmm. And in the end, they published it. So that has really been my method in in the in the first few years of my life. I call it the email bomb bombardment. Whenever you want something, you know, just don't email one or two persons with the idea and, and you know make a really well crafted email, but just email a hundred persons with it. Because, you know, there's there's obviously someone who's going to say yes if you just keep emailing people. Yeah. I've, and I've got, uh, I've got a similar thought on that. I actually did the same did it with one Dutch newspaper is that there you know I just sent it to a lot of different editors a piece to the same newspaper. And I've got seven rejections from that newspaper, but one guy said yes. So and they all didn't know from each other that they all had correspondent with the same author <laughs> wow. so uh, yeah, email bombardment that is really what works <laughs> what, what's your meaning of success oh you know just if you people should really define it for themselves uh, success success is really about making the world a little bit more interesting a little bit more beautiful giving a little bit more meaning to the world I think that is really what what I'm looking for and what probably a lot of other people are looking for as well
0: yeah, I like that. What's, do you have a piece of productivity
1: advice? Mm, yeah, stop following the news. Yeah. And the news is like the, the, the biggest waste of your time ever. The news is always about exceptions, right? About things that go wrong, corruption, crisis, terrorism, etc. So if you watch a lot of the news, at the end of the day, you know exactly how the world doesn't work. So the other thing... Uh, that I've actually discovered about productivity advice, and this is my favorite one actually. So I was really addicted to my phone, right? Facebook, Twitter, all the all the oh, standard yeah. stuff, hmm. and at some point, you know, it was really getting out of hand, and my wife was really angry at me because we were on holiday, and again, I was checking my email or reading some essay or sending some tweets or whatever, and she said, "You know, enough is enough." And I was already on the store to buy a very old-fashioned phone, right? Some old Nokia <laughs> uh, that you can only send text with and, and call someone with. Until I realized, actually, when I was on my bike off to the, to the store until I realized there is a function in your iPhone called parental controls, and this is our salvation. So what I did is I blocked my browser. I blocked my, uh, all my email facilities, and I d- did not give, allow myself to install new apps. I deleted Facebook. I deleted Twitter. And then I gave the phone to my wife, and I said, all right, now you put in the code. And so if I want to do anything else, then, you know, just WhatsApp or, you know, Google Maps, it's all in there. So it's still a smartphone. But all the stuff that I was addicted to is gone. And my life is so much better since then. You know, I've got so much more peace in my life and I'm a lot more productive. I read much more. I write much more. So, yeah, parental controls. That is that is the way to go.
0: That's a really cool strategy. Um, I like that. Uh, And certainly it's something that I've been experimenting with as well at the moment. (laughs) So that's cool. I like that. What advice would you give someone else looking to make some change in their life? Hmm. Mm.
1: Well, obviously, there are a lot of self-help books out there. And, you know, I've never really believed in the individual approach. So most of the challenges we face right now as a society are collective challenges. Yep we are not alone in dealing with burnouts and depressions and meaningless jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, my most important piece of advice would be don't blame yourself too much, but recognize that there are lots of other people, you know, struggling with the same problems, connect with them. And then it's probably much easier to handle those problems. I think that's the most important thing. So I'm not really a fan of the, um, yeah, of the whole the idea of, of, of trying to solve all your individual problems with individual solutions because often they're just collective problems. We're all suffering from it. That's really good advice.
0: What is your favorite food?
1: Oh, no, no. I'm not going to talk about food. Uh, I've, I've got very <laughs> boring foods. You know, the Dutch are, are awful when it comes to food. <laughs> so <laughs> <Is> <laughs> we everyone- don't really have a kitchen or anything. Uh, we just eat, I don't know, pasta or pizza or whatever. Okay. The, I've f- recently I've recently become a vegetarian there okay. after reading um, the book *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari. It's really a huge bestseller right now. You became a vegetarian and after
0: reading
1: that? Yeah, it blew me away. was yeah, a awesome book, away. yeah. Yeah. Quite and what And especially that made you go vegetarian after that? Well, I mean, he is a, he is a very he has a very detached view in that book, right? I mean, he doesn't make a moral judgment. Even when he talks about Nazism, it's like, yeah, well, the Nazis did this and that. And he doesn't really feel the need to say, oh, they were really bad or anything. But then when he talks about industrial farming, he's like, oh, this is probably the biggest crime in all of human history. And he just gives you the numbers Like 65 billion animals slaughtered every year while we've got a mountain of evidence that shows that these are sentient, smart beings with emotions who, you know, want friendships, who can experience empathy and all these things. That's what the scientists all say right now. And we are just torturing them on a massive scale. And I thought, hmm. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> so yeah, I I haven't eaten any anything any any meat or fish since then. I'm kind it's of the great. Same. What a book can do, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's
0: uh, interesting. From that book too, I've I've watched a few documentaries and um, just exposed myself to more information in that sense. And I've gone along that track, but I still eat some fish every mm. now and then. Um, but it's interesting that yeah, and he is, he's he's um, he's quite into his meditation as well. Is that something you practice?
1: Oh, I try. It Doesn't really work for me. Doesn't work. <laughs> Oh, i may be too young for it maybe maybe in 20 uh, years time like not. um uh, what, what's your favorite leisure activity um uh, i don't know probably something really you know just catching up with friends I, I i really like to climb so bouldering i don't know if you know that Oh yeah. um yeah that's a really great way for me to sort of clean my head but nothing too special
0: okay have you got a book that you'd like to recommend or a favorite book
1: Um, well, I'd recommend anything written by Rebecca Solnit. She's really one of my favorite authors. And she's, she's Solnit. Uh, She's, she's come up with this uh, concept of mansplaining. You might've heard of, she, she was uh, the woman who invented that term. Um, but also David Graeber, American anthropologist. I really like his work. Mm Um, Okay, that's a couple. And you yeah. mentioned a couple
0: today as well, so I'll put those yeah. in the show notes as well. Uh, guys, you can support the show, those of you who are listening out there, by using the Amazon links uh, at the at the show notes. Um, that helps
1: support the show here at The Hidden White. Uh, do you have a favorite quote? Um, I do, actually. Let's, let me just think what my favorite quote is today. Um, oh, you know, Victor Hugo once said, stronger than a thousand armies is an idea whose time has come. And I've always really liked that quote because I really feel that the time has come for basic income right now. But we'll see about that.
0: Yeah, well, mate, you're making an impact. So that's good. Uh, do
1: you believe we all have a why, a purpose? Yeah, I think we can all create our why and yeah. we can all find our why. Okay. Yeah, but it's not its not in the stars. We've got to find it within ourselves, got to create it ourselves. Yeah. And what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Mm. Well, you know, if you, as long as you're being honest with yourself and, and intellectual integrity is really important for me as well. You know, Keynes, the economist that I talked about earlier, once said, uh, if the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Um, and most people don't really change their mind. You know, we often like to stick to our opinions and probably I'm like that as well, but the intellectual ideal or or that I, that I hope that I can achieve is to be open to new opinions and to really change my mind when the facts change or when I should change my mind. Mm. I think that is, that is a, yeah, that would that, be great if a lot more people would have that ability to say, all right, well, maybe I was wrong and maybe you're all right."
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's definitely necessary. Yeah, good thought. Okay, and uh, look, we've, we've mentioned how people can find you. Is there any final uh, thoughts or, or questions that you might have or comments that you might want to make, questions that you might have? Do you have any questions for me? No. <laughs> Are there any final thoughts, Rodger? Well, you know,
1: I really enjoyed talking to you. And um, good luck with your podcast.
0: Thank you, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I've absolutely enjoyed this conversation. You've inspired my thoughts and certainly uh, inspired me. And actually, it's probably a question I didn't ask you, but inspired me to take action. What would you suggest for people out there that do have ideas and, and how to go about taking action? Because you know, you talk about mm-hmm. uh, how ideas start the progress, uh, but I think a lot of people have these ideas but just never do anything with it. And perhaps that's because they're limited with their resources, etc., cetera, or um, perhaps
1: they're just mm-hmm. limited in their own mindset and belief of what they can achieve. Um, Yeah, well, two things. Don't be afraid to be unreasonable or unrealistic or whatever, because often it's exactly those kind of people who turn out to be right in in the end. Um, And then connect to other people. You know, make sure you're not alone. Join some group or whatever for the whatever it is you're fighting for. You know never try to change the world alone, and then ce- celebrate every small victory. that is really important. You know so we ha- we need to have that radical vision of a different kind of society for the for the long term, but we also need a very practical plan of that small thing that we can change tomorrow and then celebrate every victory. Nice. and never lose your sense of humor i think that's important as well that's what happens with a lot of idealists or a lot of laughing people is that they lose their sense of humor you know if you start taking yourself too seriously that's that's always going to be a problem
0: yeah yeah absolutely and i think you learn that with age maybe i certainly <laughs> yeah probably yeah <laughs> cool mate well thank you for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure guys check it all out com. Uh, This is episode 464, so you can check out Rutger Bregman there. Um, I'll stick the link to his TED Talk in there. You've got to watch that. It's a great one. And uh, Rutger, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon